two months ago, we devoted an episode to a tropical paradise that was fast becoming a geopolitical football. That paradise was the Maldives. The subject, economic and political rivalry between China and India. But things move fast. There's another superpower playground that's getting hot, the South Pacific. China's sway is increasing in a region that's traditionally a sphere of American, French, and Australian influence. The country most in focus is Vanuatu, where China is dishing out lots of loans and beefing up the nation's infrastructure. But sooner or later, critics say, China will want to convert some of that leverage into a base for its military. Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, an economics writer and editor at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor at Bloomberg News in Washington. So what's at stake in Vanuatu and the South Pacific? How has the region's economic and political profile changed? And what are the consequences? Our guest, Jonathan Pryke from the Lowy Institute in Sydney, will try to explain it for us. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. First of all, why should we care if China's influence in the South Pacific is growing or shrinking? Well, yeah, why don't we start with a bit of geography on on what we mean by the South Pacific. The South Pacific is the region of of the Pacific Islands that is made up of 14 sovereign nations, and they range in size from tiny Niue, a country of 1,500 people, to Papua New Guinea, a country of more than 8 million. They take up 15% of the world's surface and are rich in fishery resources, but are small in people numbers. I think total population of the Pacific Islands is somewhere around 13 million people. But because they make up 15% of the world's surface, because of that, the fisheries and exclusive economic zone resources that they have, there is a significant, some significant interest in the region. But when you step back and look at the South Pacific in the global geopolitical sphere, it's really hard to see a huge amount of significance. It's not on major shipping routes. It's, it's distant from, from the power bases in Asia. But when you look to World War II, you, you can see the significant role that the Pacific Islands region has played in geostrategy in the past. And why is it important? Well, it's important particularly for Australia because we see the Pacific as really our backyard. Our former Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea, oh, sorry, of Australia, John Howard, once called the Pacific our patch. So we now have changed that language to calling ourselves the, the partner of choice for the Pacific, and that's a, relation, a, a relationship that we want to maintain in the region. So it's definitely this, this rise of China in the Pacific is definitely causing a great degree of anxiety in Canberra and in other traditional power bases that have had a role to play in the Pacific, that of Tokyo, Washington, and, and Wellington. So how did Vanuatu become the geostrategic flashpoint in all this, uh, especially with regards to China and Australia right now? Yeah, so it's, it's important to note that China's rise in the Pacific hasn't happened overnight. Indeed, China has links to the Pacific that go back hundreds of years, generations of Chinese migrants that are in the Pacific that play an important role in, in a lot of these communities. But really, since about 2006, we have seen a ramping up of China's engagement in the Pacific. And I also note that China has only engaged formally with eight countries in the Pacific Islands. The remaining six uh, support Taiwan, and they now make up 
just one third of the of Taiwan's remaining support base in the United Nations. So uh, that's a, just an interesting little little element of of China's engagement. But since two thousand and six, China has really been been ramping up its engagement in the Pacific. A lot of that has come in the form of what we see what China's doing elsewhere in the world, the form of concessional loans to build large infrastructure projects. And China's been doing this in a big way in a number of countries in the Pacific, Vanuatu being one of them. Research from the Lowe Institute has shown that that China has injected over $1.8 billion of lending and grants into the Pacific Island region since 2006. That would put it anywhere between the top three and top five donor to the Pacific Islands region. Uh, Vanuatu has emerged as a flashpoint for this engagement this year because when you take a look at the, all the different projects that China's engaged in, all the infrastructure projects, most of them are typically are pretty benign in a lot of these countries. You know, they're big government buildings, they're rehabilitating um, city centres. They're not really, you can't really see how they could be of, of dual use um, as we have seen China do in other parts of the world. So they're not, you know, critical infrastructure, they're not deep sea ports, they're not uh, air, airports. They're not these, these projects that China might want to consider doing a, an asset buyback or um, you want to use as a dual-use facility later down the road. That's different in Vanuatu. In Vanuatu, China has rehabilitated a port, a deep-sea port, on the country's largest island, but one of its least inhabited. And you know, analysts from around the world look at, look at that project, look at this now deep-sea port that um, reports have shown has the capacity to host an aircraft carrier, they look at that project with a great degree of anxiety. Jonathan, how have the region's economics changed? Is it a shift in the contours of foreign aid, traditionally dominated by Australia, France and the US? Or is there something else going on here economically? Yeah, well, the economics of Pacific Islands, of uh, these smaller countries, is quite unique. You know, uh, most of these countries are not going to follow a traditional traditional economic development pathway just because of the small size of most of these economies and just their remoteness to, to market. So in the case of Vanuatu, uh, Vanuatu is one of the most tourist-dependent economies in the world, but foreign aid is always going to, also going to be a significant contributor to economic development and to the, this, the economies more broadly in these countries. So the fact that China is injecting a lot of infrastructure into Vanuatu does have an impact on, on Vanuatu's economy, but it's not nearly as important as the, as the tourism markets that Vanuatu benefits from, which are dominated by Australia and New Zealand and from cruise ships. So, you know, well, this port that they have built is ostensibly to, to increase the amount of, of tourism arrivals. We haven't actually seen that eventuate. But there is also another lens to look at this Chinese lending through is that of the, the debt that Vanuatu is stacking up by taking on these loans. And that debt profile gives China uh, significant economic leverage over Vanuatu. How they can use that le- leverage to their advantage is a question I'm, everyone is wondering. I'm not convinced that Vanuatu can really be bought through, through this economic leverage, that this is a country with, with agency and, you know, they're their foreign minister has come out recently after these, the recent saga has hit the press and said emphatically that there is no way that they would let China develop any sort of dual-use military assets or any sort of fixed base 
in Vanuatu. They just have no interest in doing it. So just because China has this economic leverage over uh, Vanuatu, it doesn't mean they're going to be able to wield it as they might like in the future. Jonathan, talking about economic leverage from another point of view, here in Washington lately, we're spending a lot of time writing and following what's going on between the U.S. and China over trade with the potential for a trade war looming high in a lot of people's minds. Is there any connection between how China might approach trade negotiations with the United States or with other trading partners and China's approach to influence in the South Pacific or just the greater Asia-Pacific region? Uh, well, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I guess in the South Pacific, trade is a really insignificant component of the relationship. Uh, well, China does export to a degree to these countries, but it's not at all significant for China's trading profile. So far more important, I think, for their engagement in the South Pacific is to build political and formal influence in these countries to get support at the United Nations, to get uh, geopolitical support, and to, yes, yeah, se secure their support in the future. Papua New Guinea is a different story. Papua New Guinea is a country of 8 to 10 million people that is rich in a whole range of natural resources that China might be interested in securing. But yeah, tra tr the trade component of this relationship hasn't really eventuated in any significant degree at the moment. China's engagement with Australia, a major component of that is, is the trade relationship, and it has a significant influence on the way in which we in Australia interacts with, with China. And I guess it does shape the lens of the way we Australians are looking at China in, in the Pacific, in our immediate region, because of just the challenges we're having with our bilateral relationship between Australia and China. There's been some commentary that Britain wants to play a role in shoring up the neighbourhood. Jonathan, is this a joke? I mean, Britain can't decide what its relations with France and Germany should be. How can they give the South Pacific any serious attention? Yeah, look, that's a great question. And I think people have taken the announcement of Britain opening three new diplomatic missions in the Pacific as uh, a lot of people have been heralding it as a potential game changer or, you know, a Pacific pivot. And, you know, I think that's all nonsense, to be honest. Uh, first of all, the United Kingdom has colonised half of the region and to think that they can come in and now act as a, a saviour, I think, you know, we've seen how that story has played out in the past. And just because they are, it is a post-Brexit UK is expanding its geopolitical network again and wants to establish itself more as a global player, the South Pacific has been and will always be on the fringe of geopolitical interest for the United Kingdom. France has also committed to doing more in the South Pacific, but if we are expecting them to really change the landscape in any significant way, then um, I think we're all going to be let down. The real onus should be on the traditional powers that have been involved in the Pacific for a long time, Australia, New Zealand, Japan and, and the United States, to look at the way in which we're engaging with the Pacific and to really up our game to do more to maintain our positions as being the partners of choice in the Pacific Islands region. Has the United States been alarmed at these developments at all lately or, or monitoring the situation in the South Pacific? Yeah, so it's an interesting relationship between the United States and Australia with regards to the Pacific Islands region. And it's, it's quite a unique one in that the United States really does uh, take a, a quite a hands-off approach with this part of the Pacific because they see 
Australia as being a safe set of hands to be looking after this part of the world. And they really do look to us for guidance as to how they should be engaging in this part of the world and in Vanuatu and, and other countries in the Pacific. So I'm sure there have been some stern conversations between America and Australia about as to what is going on in, in our immediate neighbourhood and asking whether Australia has dropped the ball here. But uh, I think the reality is that there was not much Australia or the United States could have done to, to really curb the way in which China has been engaging to this point, it would have, or it would have taken a very concerted effort. But we're past that point now and we have to work, make sure we work with China as much as possible to make sure what they're doing in the region is beneficial to everyone. Now, Jonathan, you've done some work on labour mobility in the South Pacific. What are the microeconomics of this issue? Have the internal economies of these island states changed significantly, and is that playing a role here? Uh, yeah, so labour mobility is going to be a critical component for economic development in a lot of these countries. As Australia and New Zealand and other Western nations, we go through labour shortages, particularly in areas of the economy such as agriculture and horticulture and the care industries where we, there just aren't enough Australians to fill these, the demand, we should be looking more and more to the Pacific to help fill our labour shortages. And we have been doing that more in recent years, that we have seasonal worker programs where we bring Pacific Islanders into Australia and New Zealand to work in fruit picking. And the benefits speak for themselves. I mean, the average income for these people increases by more than fourfold and they all want to come back and they all are incredibly happy with the, with the scheme. And on the employer's side, it increases productivity of their, employer, of their workforce by almost 20% by bringing these Pacific Islanders in. So it's really a win-win for everyone. And it shows just how important labour mobility will be as a component of economic development for the Pacific in the future. Now, as to how it's changed the, the economies of these countries, it's not a one-size-fits-all. I mean, Tonga is a country that has really lent into labour mobility uh, in a big way. And now I think the, the last numbers I saw were something like 40% of the working age male population of Tonga now every year work abroad. And that is having a significant impact on the domestic uh, economy. And you know the, there's now labour shortages back in Tonga as a result of so many workers going abroad. But when you look to other countries like Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, where there is a much larger workforce waiting to re and ready to go, then you know you can still see how the untapped potential of labour mobility in the Pacific. It just we need to have a better balance of where these workers are coming from, because I think having that many workers from from Tonga every year is just going to be unsustainable practice for the Tongan economy. Go Tonga! On that note. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can also check us out on Twitter. Follow me at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. And our guest is at Jonathan underscore P-R-Y-K-E. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.